0: to 12. First John chapter 5 or 6 to 12. <clears throat> Coming to a close on the book of 1st John here. Um, hope you guys are enjoying it uh, as I say often, but today we're going to talk about having the son having eternal life, having life having heaven. I mean, All these things mean something. Um, for most of us, we, we want these things, right? We want eternal life. We, I, I think it would be hard-pressed to find someone in this room who does not want eternal life or who does not want heaven or does not want these things. But what does it mean to have the Son? What does it mean to have eternal life? How does one get eternal life? And then what does it mean to have it? I mean, for many of us, the gospel lost its relevance after we prayed the sinner's prayer. I wonder how many of us lost the relevance of the gospel After we said this in his prayer, or after we walked a church aisle, or after we made some sort of religious profession about some dude named Jesus, but having the son means so much more than just some little short recitation of religious verbiage that we might have said the day that we decided we didn't want to go to hell and we thought heaven might be a better place. Having the sun means so much more. And having eternal life might be a helpful way of thinking of it when we think of how do we have the sun. But even having eternal life, for many of us, having eternal life is simply the idea that I get to go to heaven and we don't have much articulation beyond that. We don't have much more we can say about having eternal life other than just, I get to be with Jesus for all of eternity, and I don't have to burn in hell. But having eternal life, it means so much more than that. I want us to think of it this way. We all had a sin problem, and we all currently still have a sin problem. Just Our sin problem still looks a little bit differently. But we all had a sin problem. We repented, though, and placed our faith in Jesus, resulting in Justification. So, for those who are redeemed by God, those who have placed their faith in God, had a sin problem, but now, after placing faith in Christ, resulting in justification, that has taken place. But what did we repent for? I want us to think about this. What did you actually repent for? Did you repent for consequences that you did, or, or, or what? Ultimately, your sin that you repented for should have been. Your sin against a holy God. Your unrighteousness in the face of God's righteousness. Our sin ultimately was that we did not believe that God is who He says He is and will do as He says He does. I want us to think about that for a second. Ultimately, our sin against God is foundationally our misbelief or unbelief in who God is and that God will do as He says He does. And in doing so, when we we act in such a way that we are saying God is not who He says He is or He is not going to do as He says He will do or He does, we attribute falsehood to God. Now I want you to think about that for a second. What does it mean to attribute falsehood to someone? Like, for me to bear false testimony about this person. Now, in, in our courts, right, if you were caught lying in, in the courtroom and in front of giving your testimony, you get, get in serious trouble for that. How much more so would a lie about God be? How much more important would that be? You're bearing false testimony against God. When we live as though God is not who He says He is, and as God is not going to do as He says He will do or He does, then we attribute falsehood to God. We speak a lie about God to this world. We say this sin over here is more valuable than God is, is more delightful than God is. We're saying that this creation is more delightful than God. We are saying God is not supremely delightful. And this lust or this anxiousness or this pride is more delightful and more worthy of my worship than God. What are we saying about God? And ultimately our sin it comes back to that. That was our sin problem. We said that God is a liar, that He's not the king of the world, and He's certainly not my king. Why? Because we didn't think that He was worthy to be our king. We are God's creatures, and our very actions as His creatures were attributing falsehood to God our pleasure in this world and this is pre-salvation for us our pleasure in this world was saying that the creation is more pleasurable than the creator himself that God is not who he said he is because if we really believe that God is who he said he is then we will worship God for who he is But when we choose otherwise, we are saying something false about God. So what happens? So we repent for attributing and calling God a liar. And then place our trust in Him. But then the question is, what happens after that? For many people, it becomes simply just about doing more good things. I want to help us, just for a brief moment here, to think. When we think of sanctification, think of growing in our faith, like it's not just, I just, I'm already doing good things and I just need to do more good things. No, your lack of doing good things is sin. So we need to repent of that which we're not doing and then do those good things out of that repentance. But see, if we begin with the baseline thinking that I'm generally good, and I just, then, I, then in order to be sanctified, I just need to do more good things. And then we get to avoid the whole issue of repentance. But the reality is that the truth of our initial salvation, where we did not do good things, we did evil things, that God had to rescue us from that through repentance, is the same thing true today. As we struggle with doing evil things, we have to repent. It's not just do more good things. We have to repent. So then the question is, well, how does the gospel fit into this life of continual repentance? What does it look like to have eternal life? John refers to Jesus as eternal life, right? So eternal life is not just I get heaven when I die, but it is I get the gospel now. The eternal life is Jesus himself, and I get the Gospel, if, if I'm going to make that synonymous with eternal life, but I get Him now. So how do we then live this life? Because the problem is that we really do still have a sin problem. The reality though is we have been we've been set free from that sin, but we still struggle with that sin. So every time we sin, we're believing something wrongly about God. We are attributing falsehood to God, whatever the sin may be. So how do we deal with it? That's where I would encourage us, we deal with it the same way. We repent for calling God a liar, and then we continue trusting He is who He says He is. So here's kind of a big thought for us for today. I want you to see that having eternal life is both initial and continual belief in the past and present work of God through His sent Son, Jesus the Christ. So I want you to see that having eternal life is both initial and continual belief in the past and present work, and you could also add the future work of God, through His sent Son, Jesus the Christ. I'll read it one more time. I want you to see that having eternal life is both initial and continual belief in the past and present work of God through His sent Son, Jesus Christ. So what do I mean by a couple of those things? Let me clarify. Initial belief and subsequent salvation, like initial salvation. When I think of initial belief, that is regenerated heart, new birth, resulting faith in Jesus, which is repentance, then justification, that's initial salvation. Then the second part is eternal life, is also continual belief and subsequent salvation as well. That was one thing the Catholic and I discussing yesterday could agree on, is that uh, salvation should be viewed as not just the moment I was saved, but as a process through which I am being saved as well, and we 've talked about this as a church many times before <laughs> for him though, there was a there' was a, a stench of, um, of earning that salvation, um, as where for us, it is Christ who earned that salvation, and we 're simply working that out, but continual belief in God and who he says he is and what he says he did through Jesus Christ the testimony that he gave in Christ that is how we work out our continued our continue to work out our salvation. So what does it mean to have the son? Let's read chapter 5 or 6 through 12. Chapter 5 or 6 through 12. He says this is he who came by water and blood Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for there is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Now, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and His life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Fathers, we think through this wonderful passage in John's letter to the Ephesians and to us. Father, may we see that there is no life apart from eternal life in the Son and that we would understand the continued belief in the work of your Son on the cross as necessary for our working out of our salvation. Uh, Father, we love you. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. So again, the big thought for today, I want you to see that having eternal life is both initial and continual belief in the past and present work of God through His sent Son, Jesus Christ. So, think with me back, all the way back to the garden, okay? Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve live in perfect relationship with God. Every part of their lives attribute glorious truths to God, right? I mean, every part of their lives, they are exercising dominion over this earth. They are naming the animals, which is, when in the Old Testament, even today, the idea of being able to name something is to is to give is to have authority over to exercise dominion over that thing. The fact that we get to name our kids is us saying I am in authority over my child. I own you. I am in dominion over you. So Adam and Eve are naming the creation. They're exercising dominion. They are God's vice regents, his representatives attributing Glory to God at every turn. They are screaming to the world the wonderful character of the Father, that He is provisional, that He is providential, that He has given them everything that they need. Their food, their their very lives and continual breathing attributes glory to God, that God has given this creation, He has created these people, that they are living underneath His authority, Him as their King, a ruling and reigning in His world, And their very existence and continued existence gives glory to God. They they scream that He is caring, that He is gracious, that God is kind, that God is orderly. Everything about Adam and Eve is saying and attributing nothing but glorious truths to God. They're enjoying, guys get this, they're enjoying eternal life with the Father. This is all before the fall. They're enjoying what, if the fall had not happened, what would have been eternal life with the Father. Then, what happens? I mean, we, I, mean I know we all know the, the story. You know, the woman says, oh, this, this food is good. Let me give it to my husband. It's all her fault. I mean, right? But that's the story of the fall. Now, let's think about this for a second. Adam and Eve, what do they do? They begin to call into question the trustworthiness of God, right? Satan says, well, you won't surely die, right? And Eve goes, yeah, we won't surely die. God didn't really mean that, did He? I mean, did He really mean what He said when He was talking about not eating from the tree? I mean... Is God's testimony really trustworthy and true? Is it something really that I can, I can rely on, that I can believe to be true? Or is there some falsehood in it? Surely He won't kill us if we eat of the tree. And what does Eve do? What is Eve ultimately saying as she eats from that tree and Adam as he eats from that tree? What is she saying about God. God, you are a liar. What you say to be true is not true. You are a liar. Adam, as he eats a bite from the tree, he says, you, God, are a liar. You have not given me everything that I needed. You were withholding this from me. God, you will not kill me for eating of this tree. You're a liar. God, you are not most delightful. I can find better pleasure than you, Father, if I eat from this tree. Adam and Eve now go from attributing nothing but trustworthy, but truth and glorious truth to the Father, to now saying to the world, God, you are a liar. You are not providential. You do not care about us. This is more delightful than you. Ultimately, Adam and Eve now say to the world, God, you are not who you say you are. God is not who he says he is. God's provision is not good enough. God's desire for our health and future is not satisfactory. God's word is not good. We must discover the truth for ourselves. God is a liar. That's what Adam and Eve say in the garden. So the result is immediate guilt and spiritual death. We see this in the garden. And then eventually it will be physical death. Now Adam and Eve can no longer trust each other. They can no longer trust God and we see here that man is not generally good. Man is generally evil. God must do something. Yes, God created man good, certainly. But then man's evilness took over. And God choo- man chooses to call God a liar. Now with this in mind, I want us to turn back to John, first John chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, and ask the question: what does it mean for us to have? The Son of God. How do we get the Son of God? The first thing we need to understand is that Jesus Christ is the object of your faith, or of our faith. That Jesus Christ is the object of your faith. Let's read 1 John 5, 6-8. John says this, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three Agree. So first of all, the first thought here underneath, Jesus Christ is the object of your faith. Faith is affirming that Jesus is the one who came. The one who came. He's the object of that faith. It's faith that He is the one who came. Verse 6, this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now we would know from the broader context of 1 John that he's talking about as the one who came from God... Faith is affirming that Jesus is the one who came. Now this is more than than just, I believe that Jesus is some person in the Bible. If you really believe that Jesus is the one who came, then change has to happen in your life. Right? That's what we've been talking about in 1 John. There's assurance of this. There's fruit, love for the brethren. Now I want us to remember though, as we think about this faith as affirming Jesus as the one who came, remember last week that this faith is first enabled by the regenerating work of the Father. So someone who has not placed their faith in Christ yet, God has not turned their heart from darkness to light. They still desire evil, solely and exclusively evil. God must first grant new birth in order for faith to be possible. But this faith is not in some good thought or idea. This faith is not in our own imagination or creation of this person we think called Jesus. Our faith is in the objective, historical person, the one who came. Does that make sense? It's not in this Jesus that we can create or that we have created in our mind. This is in this person whom the Bible describes as the one who came from God. And John affirms, next kind of big thought, is that John affirms that the one who came, came by water and blood. Came by water and blood. Now what's important about that? Let's think about water and blood and blood water i believe here means i think john is talking about jesus's baptism by john i think i think john is talking about the water baptism by john the baptist this is where the god man officially identifies with us humans Right, So Jesus was not baptized. It wasn't Jesus, go repent, and now I can baptize you. So it's not Jesus repented, and now Jesus is being baptized. But it's Jesus' baptism in which he identifies himself with us human sinners. So he comes by water. So think about this. That would be wonderful for God just to reveal himself to mankind, that he would just come by water and identify with his people. That would be great, but we would all still be damned to hell. Without the blood. So he says he came by water and blood. The blood is Jesus' atoning death. This is where the God man officially unites fallen mankind with its creator, God. So Jesus doesn't just come and identify with man, but he comes, with, comes from God in order to identify with man, in order to pay the atoning death that was required of him on our behalf. So he must first identify with us. So he came by water. This is God's testimony that he, would, he came by water. Then he came by blood. So in the water, Jesus says to to the Father, these people are mine, I claim them. This was God's plan, that Jesus would come and claim these people as a part of who He is, or that He is a part of mankind, these are mine, I am identifying with them. The blood, on the other hand, is where Jesus says the punishment is mine, I will pay the price. It's under the blood. This is where Jesus shows that God is not a liar. That He is provisionary. That He is providential. That He is caring. That He is loving. That He is just. That He is wrathful. That He is holy. That He is righteous. Jesus' whole life attributes nothing but the truth to the Father. Now, this faith, as we talk about, this faith is affirming Jesus is the one who came. This faith is also rooted in truth, not human tradition, not human speculation, and certainly not human imagination. It is rooted in the truth. Now, certainly, we're coming at this from the standpoint of this is truth. So if this is truth, what does this truth have to say to us about this person? John tells us here that it is the testimony of God. Look at 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. So this work of God through the water and through the blood is God's, if you will, His public witness. This outer public witness to the life and to His work through Jesus Christ. The Spirit the water and the blood. think about this. Why do they all agree? Why would you think that the Spirit, the water, and the blood in this outer testimony all agree? Because God is the one behind it all. Because the Father is the one that came up with the idea of the water. It's the Father who came up with the idea of the blood. It's the Father who who sent the test of the testimony of the holy spirit god is the one behind it these three witnesses form in fact one single divine testimony to jesus christ which god has given this one testimony by god now if, in the greek if you study there's the perfect tense here indicates the abiding validity of God's historical witness to Christ. It is God who bore witness to Christ in history. It was final. It was done. The idea of born here see the word born? He has born concerning his son. It speaks of kind of like this kind of like a, a finality to God's witness. Like it's like, God, it's like John is saying, it was done. There was a finality to this witness. God's testimony is permanent and final, not to be set aside or altered. You see, here's the deal. For a follower of Jesus to justify sin, they must alter the truth of God's testimony. Anytime we justify sin, we are altering the testimony of God. So this issue with churches, uh, you know, fighting for homosexual marriage and stuff, they have to alter the testimony of God in order to make that happen. For us to justify our, uh, our greediness, we have to just we have to alter the selfless the testimony of god's selfless giving of his son jesus christ to die on the cross we look at that we cannot look at that and say that's greedy no 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 that was certainly selfless giving so how then can we justify our greediness we have to alter or change in our mind Or conveniently forget, if you will, the lack of greediness in the giving of His Son. We have to change that. We have to alter what is the reality in order to make our made-up reality. Our make-believe reality in order to justify our sin. But when He says it was born, again, there's a finality to it. It's not to be set aside. Think about it this way. The creator of the universe says, here is my eternal, my son, Jesus Christ. He will pay the price for your sin. This is God's testimony. And if you look at verse 7 and 8, John simply basically restates the same thing. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So John has just said that the object of our faith is Jesus Jesus as the son of God, the one sent from God. In order to have eternal life, we must affirm faith in Jesus. Again, this is more than just an intellectual assent to some historical religious figure. This is placing your faith in him as the one who he as the one he says he is. And that is the only one who can pay the price for your sin. At the very least, this idea of affirming faith in Jesus is turning from our righteousness, turning to faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the righteous substitute for your sin. Now, in the event that one has actually done this, right? That one has actually affirmed faith in Christ, then, secondly, there is an, there is an inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Right? Yeah. There is an inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I think he was uh, like a dinosaur right there or a lion or something. Alright, there's an inner, te- inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Let's move forward. First John 5.10, he says this. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony... In himself. So now that John has discussed God's divine witness and testimony of his son, now John begins to discuss our response to this witness. So God has given witness, now what is our response to this witness? Of course we talked about this affirming faith in Jesus, but the purpose, guys, of the testimony to Christ that God did in the water and the blood is to evoke faith in Jesus. Christ. That was the purpose. God's goal in His testimony was to bring faith to life in the elect. This is God's desire. This was God's goal. God's plan in His testimony. His testimony was not meant to come and for it to be called false. Now certainly that would divide out those who would believe and those who would not believe. But the, the purpose of the testimony is to evoke belief in it. Now receiving this testimony leads naturally to believing in the one to whom the testimony is given. So Jesus is given the testimony. Jesus is the testimony of God. And receiving that testimony is receiving Christ. Belief in Jesus is belief in the one who gave that testimony, namely, God. God gives the testimony of Jesus, so belief in Jesus is ultimately belief in God. Now, after receiving the testimony, John says that the testimony is in the believer. What does it mean for the testimony of God to be in the believer? There's this inner witness that John talks about here. So there was this outer witness, the water, the blood, the work of the cross. Now there's this inner witness. The testimony, let's think about it this way. If this is the case, if there's this inner witness, then the testimony then is both the cause and the consequence of belief. The testimony, then, is... Follow me for a second. Is both the cause and the consequence of belief. How is it the cause? This testimony of God leads us to faith in Christ. All right? So when we believe... The testimony of God, it causes us to place that our belief and faith in Christ. Now what do I mean by the consequence? Now the testimony resides in our souls. So the testimony leads us to faith in Christ, which then results in the testimony residing and abiding in us. So it's both the cause that brings about faith, which again, in whose work? Who's the one that did the testimony? Who's the one that did the work on the cross? Who, who? It's God, right? It was God's work. That evokes faith. When we see that for as it is, when God turns our heart to see and believe God for who He is, we believe His testimony. When we believe His testimony, that, re- that necessarily results in faith in who God is and His work on the cross and repentance of our sins. Then the testimony resides in us. So it's both the cause and the consequence. Let me say this. We're talking about this inner witness. If the Spirit never assures you of your salvation, then you probably don't have the Spirit. Now, when we think of the Spirit assuring us of our salvation... I'm not talking about little googly feelings of, okay, yeah, I, I love this person, Jesus, and I'd really like to go to heaven. That would not be the assurance of the Spirit, the inner witness of the Spirit. The inner witness of the Spirit would be leading us to righteousness and holiness and the pursuit thereof. The inner work, John, I don't have time to jump back into the rest of First John, but John's goal here is not that the witness of the Holy Spirit would just be something that makes us feel good about our religiosity. John would say the witness of the Spirit is very specific things like Love for the brethren, giving preference to the to the body of Christ. That would be an example. Putting off the world and putting on Christ, leaving unrighteousness to pursue righteousness. That would be tied with the witness, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is leading me to pursue righteousness, then the Holy Spirit's in me. But if I have disregard for righteousness, then the Holy Spirit is not in me. I was listening to a panel this past week on at the on the pursuit of holiness and righteousness. And it just like it just kind of hit me as John Piper reaches across the table and they're talking about, I'm trying to forget the exact forget the exact con, uh, not the exact context, but I forget the exact wording around the phrase. We're talking about a Christian who isn't pursuing righteousness, supposedly a Christian who isn't pursuing righteousness. Um, pursuing fornication or whatever the case may be, and he says, John just very bluntly says, well, they're going to hell, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Because what would be the continued pursuit of that? Evidence that you were not redeemed, right? The continued pursuit of pleasure in this world is evidence of unbelief. It is a life filled with speaking lies about the Father, of saying God is not who He says He is. So yeah, when the Bible does say that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? He, when He says that, it really, He really means that. It's not just a, here, let me scare you into believing in Jesus. He really means that these people who pursue this world will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? because all they're doing is speaking lies and and misbelieving the testimony of God and calling Him a liar, and He's not who He says He is. That is to not have eternal life. So if the Spirit never assures you of your salvation, then maybe you, you probably don't have the Spirit. I do think it's wonderful at this point that John does not tell us what this actually looks like. He does not say that the Spirit looks like speaking in tongues or a warm, tingly feeling in your chest or a good parking spot at Walmart. This is not necessarily what God is saying. This is affirmation of your faith in God. Again, I would encourage you to hear the witness of the Spirit in your heart when He increases your desire to know the Word more, to love God more, to do more action on behalf of God. This is the witness of the Holy Spirit in you. So, kind of back to tying these things together. Once God grants new birth, this person begins trusting God that He is who He says He is. And He did or does what He said He did and says He does. Now the wonderful thing is that following this, the testimony of the Father through the life of His Son serves as both the cause of your salvation and the consequence of your salvation. Now the testimony This testimony leads you to eternal life. And this testimony, which is Jesus himself, who is eternal life himself, now resides in us, giving witness to our souls of the one who now dwells in us. Think about that. What kind of a deal is that? God grants new birth. We place faith in him. And then by his testimony, it evokes faith in him, resulting in his abiding in us wow, like, that's a whole lot better than 10 steps to having a good marriage, right? Like, we get God. We don't just get 10 steps to a better marriage or five steps to better parenting or, you know, three steps to losing weight. or Like, you get God. You get God. Only those who call God God a liar are the ones who go to hell. There's actual sin in rejection. Why? Why is there sin in rejection? You call God a liar. Here's the reality, no one in this world and no one in this room considers themselves as calling God a liar, right? I mean, none of you walked into this room today saying, you know what, I think God's a liar, right? Anybody? Anybody? When you lusted this past week, you called God a liar. When you were hateful to your wife, you called God a liar. I think you're tracking with me. Rejecting the testimony of God. Guys, hear me. Rejecting the testimony of God is not an all-moral act. It is either moral or immoral. And in this case, it is immoral. Rejecting God, as one writer said, it is the most deplorable act of all to reject the testimony of God to reject someone's testimonies, to call them a liar, right? First John 5.10b, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now remember back to the garden, what happened, right? Adam and Eve gave up eternal life. They gave up physical life, life with the Father, eternal bliss and unhindered enjoyment with the Father because why? Because they thought God to be a liar, Surely God did not mean what he said? God does not know best, we know best. Surely we will find more joy when we de- when we decide what is right and wrong, what is good for us and what is bad for us. But here the one who has not believed though has forfeited the possibility of receiving any further testimony from God. He has called God a liar. Every person that has not been redeemed by God cannot choose God because he is, think about this, he is actively calling God a liar. So I think this helps when we think of regeneration, when we think of the fact that God has to grant new birth. Why? What's one of the reasons for why? It's because that person is not just sitting there going, oh God, I would believe in you if you would just change my heart. No, he's sitting there going, God is a liar. The person who's not been redeemed by God is actively calling God a liar. Now think about that and call them generally good. That's not possible. To call God a liar does not make someone generally good. To call God a liar is to make someone generally evil. Let me read to you John 10, 25-30. It says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So note here, first of all, that God is the one who gives Jesus the children, the sheep. They are given to Jesus by God. And clearly God has not given everyone to Jesus. Also note that these people did not believe because they were not God's sheep. They were calling God a liar. You're a liar, God. Like what John Stott said, he said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it is a sin to be deplored. Now before we start getting too self-righteous here, remember, it's what is salvation? It is initial, what is eternal life? It is initial and continual belief. So, as we continue to struggle with sin, why? It's because of unbelief. And we'll get to that more in a few seconds. So, before we just begin to look at the lost world and have pity or, or, or whatever on them, we have to remember that we're still going to struggle with some of this ourselves. The sinfulness here lies in the fact. That it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to Him. To not believe God is to attribute falsehood. This is the reality of sin. To sin, guys, is to delight in something else other than God. To delight in something other than God is to attribute falsehood about God. You're saying that this here, that A is more delightful than God, or B is more delightful than God. I mean, think about what the audacity of that statement. Another way to think about this, though, is all sin comes down to something wrong you're believing about God. So behind my sin of lust is the lie that this image that I'm looking at is more satisfying than the Father. Or by, behind my sin of anxiousness is the lie that God is not in control. Or behind my sin of showing preference of not showing preference to the body is the lie that God exists for my glory. Like what Luther said. Speaking on the testimony of God, that's what Luther, Martin Luther said. He says, God should not be sought or known except through the testimony. Speaking of His testimony through Jesus. For to be unwilling to be content with the manner in which God wants to be found by us, but to seek and prescribe one's own manner is to find the devil, not God. we believe the testimony that God has borne in His Son, Jesus, not any other testimony. So to believe the testimony of God has necessary results. To believe God at His Word is to place faith in Him. To believe what God says is to affirm faith in Him. And as we affirm this testimony of God about His work through His Son, Jesus Christ, we get eternal life. And this life is in Jesus. We get eternal life. How about that? Let's read 5.11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son, John now points us back to the original testimony, water and the blood and the Spirit. Now historically, think historically here with me, God's witness concerning Jesus is not only that He is the divine human Christ, but that He is the life giver, the Savior of the world, the Son, that in Him is life. The idea of eternal life, like the word here, eternal life, that God gave us eternal life is emphatic. Like there's emphasis in the sentence on the idea of eternal life. God gave us eternal life. He gave us eternal life. Now, think historically, now think con- in conversion here. Eternal life is a free gift that God gives to those who believe in His Son, Right? The gift of life is, what is the gift of life? What do we get in eternal life? We get the experience of fellowship with God through Christ, which is eternal life. Right? Think about this. You have to think of eternal life in more than just one or two sentences. Not just eternal life is heaven with God, but eternal life is Jesus Himself. We experience fellowship with God Through Christ, who is eternal life, and the result is eternal life as well. Does that make sense? We have fellowship with God through eternal life, which is eternal life, both in the person of eternal life, as in Jesus, and in the quantity, if you will, of that time, which is eternally. So we get to have fellowship with God through the person, Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, which results in eternal life with God. Some of your brains just go, kind of, right? <clears throat> <laughs> now, think about this, though. This is God's final testimony to his son. The fact that we would live eternally in right relationship with the Father is the pinnacle testimony of God to the world about the work he has done through his son. It's kind of like the monument that God is placing in front of the world to see his glory. Is the fact that he could take a dreadful, eternal, infinitely great sinner and change his heart to begin to love God and dwell in the eternal life who is his son. And that monument will stand for how long? Forever which is also the beauty of the perseverance of the saints when we think about the guarantee of the working out our salvation. If we've genuinely been redeemed, God will see that for what? For the rest of this life? No, it will be an eternal monument to the world. Guys, the fact that He's turned our cold, dead hearts into new hearts that now desire to trust the Creator for who He is instead of the creation. This is the testimony of God to His Son. The fact that now, those redeemed would begin only displaying truth about God in their words and in their deeds. But guys, see this though. God is not restoring us just back to pre-fall when these people did not sin yet. He restores us to a place where we cannot sin any longer. The choice is not even there. Christian, let me ask you this question. Does your life display eternal life? Do you share eternal life or do you hoard eternal life? Right, Christian, seriously, look at me. If eternal life dwells in you, could other people tell it? If you have received the testimony of eternal life, do you share it? Or do you hoard it? As we were reminded at the conference I went to this past week, use words. It's not enough just to show it. I mean, the reality is, is I doubt any of you could really show it that good anyways. must use words. I think there's a, you know, the whole like, you know, share the gospel and if necessary use words. Most of our lives don't share the gospel very well, period, and probably never will. And we certainly don't give the specifics of the gospel that are necessary for salvation. Let's share the gospel. So now as we think of our sin problem, Think about we believed wrongly about God. We called him a liar with the way we lived our lives. We continue to struggle with that. But as we follow Christ, the temptation is the same. We're tempted to choose the creation of the creator. We're tempted to say that God is not who he says he is. To turn from sin, we must continually affirm that which is true of God and repent for what we believe that is false about God. Does that make sense? We must continually affirm that which is true about God. We must continually affirm faith in God. You see, having the Son means trusting the Son continuously. 1 John 5:12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever has the Son has life. We're going to come back to that phrase in just a second. But three important truths we learn here about eternal life. Three important truths we learn about eternal life. Number one, it is not a prize which we have earned, but an undeserved gift that we've been given. It is not a prize that we have earned, but a gift that we've that we have been given. It wasn't our birthday. It wasn't our anniversary. We didn't pay for it. He gave it to us. He paid the price. It was His birthday. It was His celebration. He gave us the gift. Number two, it is found in Christ. This eternal life is found in Christ so that in order to give us life, God both gave and gives us His Son. It is found in Christ, eternal life is found in Christ, so that in order to give us life, God both gave and gives us His Son. He both gave and gives us His Son. Number three, the gift of life in Christ is a present possession. It was not a previous thing to be had. Many of us live Many Christians live that way. That Jesus Christ was something that I had and now I'm on to bigger and better things like morality. But it's something to have currently, presently. Eternal does not refer to the age to come but since it is already, I'm sorry, eternal, when you think of eternal life, it does refer to the, if I can read my notes, it does refer to the age to come but since the, That is already here, and yet not fully here. We indeed have the gift of life now. So let's read John, the book of John, chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John's gospel, think of for just for a second as we wrap up here. John's gospel was written as a testimony to Jesus' life. The purpose for this testimony is that you may believe, that we may believe, that I may believe. The result of faith is that believing you may have life in His name. The way to life is faith, and the way to faith is testimony. The way to life is faith, and the way to faith is through testimony. God gives testimony through His Son Jesus and His work on the cross. We have faith in that testimony. Therefore, we have life. In fact, we have eternal life. John Stott said this God has borne witness to his Son that men may believe in him and so have him, and having him may have life. Guys, to have, think about this with me to have the Son is to trust in him continuously. This idea of having the Son is not something that we had. It's something that is current and ongoing. To have eternal life is not just, I have my stake placed out for the future, or I have my hotel uh, accommodations booked up for this afterlife. Having eternal life is a current, present thing. It's not just a past event. It's not just a future event. Most Christians live that way. Having the gospel meant I had him then, and then I'm going to have him in eternity, but between now and then, it's just kind of this, i got to get along as best I can, and do as good as I can, and and be this good little moral Christian, and that's not the point. The point is you had the gospel, you had eternal life then, you have eternal life now, and you'll have eternal life in the future. Having, it's a current possessive thing. There is a decisive action for believers here and here and now we have to think of our faith in eternal life in Jesus as something that we are deciding every day i'm not saying that we're getting resaved every day but that we're continuing to persevere in our affirming of our faith In Jesus, there's a continual affirming and saying, yes, God, today in this situation, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you will do what you said you will do. I believe that you have done what you said you have done. I believe you, Father. I'm not going to turn from you to indulge in the sin, but I'm going to turn to you and continue to turn to you by your grace. Help me to turn to you. Help me to affirm you today. There's a decisive action for believers here and now. He says, Whoever has the Son has life. He doesn't say, Whoever had the Son has life. Whoever has the Son right now has life. Does that make sense? Whoever has the Son now, whoever does not have the Son right now does not have life. Eternal life is not possible apart from having the Son. Now this is an ongoing struggle, not a once-for-all action. See, Many of us think think of salvation just very simply as a one-time action, but instead it's an ongoing battle. Now, yes, if you were truly redeemed, your redemption is guaranteed. But if indeed you were redeemed, then you will not forfeit continual belief and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Does that make sense? If indeed you're redeemed, then you will not give up, you will not cease continually believing and trusting in Jesus as the Son of God. Now here's the question, how do you know, though, if you were truly redeemed? By continual belief and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Let me read those two statements to you one more time. If indeed you were redeemed, then you will not cease continual belief and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. And all that that includes, His righteousness, your uh, his dying and absorbing the wrath for your sin. All those say that Jesus is who He says He is. God is who He says He is. But how do you know if you were truly redeemed? By continuing to believe and trust in Jesus as the Son of God and all that He says He is and all that believing that He has done all that He says that He has done. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I want to pray for us. Father, I pray that as we've listened to your words this morning, that that we would understand the weightiness of, of pursuing life in you. But Father, I pray that all of us that have experienced eternal life, Father, that have experienced the joy of the gospel. Father, that we would be so encouraged and immersed in your faithfulness, Father, that that we couldn't help but tell other people about what you've done in our hearts and in our lives. And and, uh, Father, just so thankful for your word and for your graciousness to us. I pray that if there's anyone in here that does not have the Son, that, Father, you would open their hearts to love you and to believe you and to trust that you are who you say you are. And, Father, for those of us who, who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, now, Father, we would recognize each day that in each moment we are either living under your authority, affirming you for who you are, or we are living under our own authority saying that you are not who you say you are. So, Father, as we worship you this morning, as we worship you in these next few moments, Father, help us to see that You are who You say You are, that we can believe You at Your Word, or we can trust You, that Your actions are good, and that, the, that Your plans are perfect, and, and Father, Your future goals will come to pass. Father, uh, let's help our hearts to love You, to trust You, and Father, it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? Now why the seer and on me has not the Father put to grief?